You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today, Kirkland Hamill, the author of Filthy Beasts, and I continue our conversation about his story as a family member where the disease of addiction was ever present in more than one person. We start by revisiting Kirkland's quote, You taught me how to survive you, when sharing about how he navigated his mother's addiction. Let's get back to Kirkland. So I want to go back to that because that's blown me away. I've read your book, but of course, you know it inside and out. You taught me how to survive you. Yes. Yeah. She, um, she, uh, that ferocity, that sort of, that, that commitment to being who she was and not caring what other people thought about her uh, in a different circumstance would have made her a very formidable person and a very impressive person. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of a lot of the context around this. She um, grew up at a time when, as she said herself, she was raised to be married and have children. Um, She was very smart, uh, probably very capable of doing all sorts of things. She was also very beautiful and which can be a trap within itself. Right. Again, nobody's going to be crying over the poor, beautiful person, but you could see how somebody who is desired and she was married at 21 and married a very well into a very wealthy family. And, you know, this, you tell that story and you think, okay, it's like a fairy tale. Um, fairy tales are never real when it comes to situations like that. She just, um, I think placed herself into a box that she didn't belong in and then argued for the fact that she should stay in the box, argued to herself, argued to the world. And when the box got too small, she tried to drink herself into being okay in it. Um, and you know, that doesn't work out for anybody. And with this disease being such a great equalizer, it affects everybody in very similar ways. But when there is a lot of means, there's often a sicker outcome for the person with the illness because there's so many people to cover, clean up, hide. And by no means do I minimize someone who's homeless and how painful and the realities of those consequences are, but they end up in the same place, potentially. Death. Yeah. The difference is one's in the corner office with a whole team taking care of them despite them turning yellow and the other one's on the street. Right. But it's painful to watch either way. Yeah, I think my mother, uh, her second husband was a world-class enabler. I mean, to the point where by the time we finally had an intervention, she was close to death. And that was the only time he sort of decided that, okay, I can, there's nowhere else to go now. She wasn't coming out of her room. I mean, it was just sort of at the last, you know, part of it. And 
even after all of that, we put her into rehab and she was only there for three days because when she gave him a call and said, I don't like it here and I'm miserable and they're being mean to me, he picked her up and took her out. Um, and they had enough money where she could have a full-time nurse, um, that there was somebody there to take care of her, that the bank account wasn't depleted by not having a job or drinking yourself into um, poverty. There were the means to continue doing what they were doing without consequences, um, besides the internal ones and the physical ones and the medical ones. Um, the real consequences that mean you can't actually get up and go to a store because you can't physically get up and go to a store and you don't have the money to do it. Those barriers never, they never happened. So uh, the outcome was, uh, I think outcomes, as you're saying, are probably better for people who at some point have to do something different because the world isn't supporting what they are doing anymore. And my mother's world was supported in what she was doing until the day she died. Do you ever feel angry at the disease for taking your mom? Not anymore. Um, I was angry. I had all sorts of conflicting emotions <clears throat> while I was going through it, but I really grieved her for a long time before she died. Um, to the point where even before she died, I was moving into compassion. And I, that wasn't a slow, a long, it wasn't a slow process. It was a long process. Um, and it took a lot of work and a lot of, um, you know, just getting to the point where I could express it and purge it and all of those things. But I did get to the point where um, we talk about alcoholism as a disease, but we don't place it in the same category as cancer or something else that was thrust upon somebody and um, they then died of cancer. You don't think, oh, well, they brought it on themselves. Um, with alcoholism, we still do that they, and partially I, I understand that because an alcoholic can, there is treatment available, but part of the disease is that at some point people don't think they- It tricks you. Yeah. It tricks you into thinking you don't have the problem. That, right. You don't have the problem and you don't, everybody else is the problem. I mean, it does also, it's a, that's why it's a multi-layered disease. It isn't just a physical disease. It is a mental disease. So when um, I've had a lot of sadness over the fact that I didn't have the mother that I wanted to have, or that I thought I should have, and all of those illusions we tell ourselves about, you know, who we think our parents should actually be. Um, I am aware that objectively speaking, I was robbed of a certain quality of parent. Um, but, you know, I got to the point where I'm a full grown human being and I've figured out other ways to parent myself and to get support and to do all of those things that a parent can do. I've got great friends and I, um, I invest a lot in my own mental health and well-being. Um, and now my overarching feeling about it is intense compassion. There's no way my mother would have looked at herself as a 21 year old, beautiful, um, vibrant person and 
uh, mapped out dying at 61 years old, um, looking like she was 85 in a bedroom by herself. That's not how, that's not how she wanted to live her life. And the disease of alcoholism is the reason that, you know, that, that disease took her life. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. As you share, what came up for me was a quote from Brené Brown, where she said about addiction, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. The baffling nature of addiction, unlike any other disease, twists the mind not only of the person with the disease, but the loved ones also, and makes it incredibly hard to see the true nature of the disease. If it were enough to watch your mother go through that, for any of you boys, there's no way any of you boys would choose to drink. Of course. Yeah. Certainly wouldn't choose to be an alcoholic. Right. And yet that was part of the story. Yes. That it's not just been your mom. No. No. And so I think that's one of the things that when people are going, but is it really a disease? That's evidence that it is. Right. If it were within our power, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. And it's, a, it's and I get the frustration around it because yeah. you would think and a logical person would think, okay, this is what happens when you drink too much. And um, it should be fairly evident to you pretty quickly if you've got a problem and then you should start taking the steps to do something about it. But no, I mean, obviously it's a generational disease. Um, most of the people who are alcoholic have an alcoholic parent or have some alcoholic relative. Um, and that contributes to, uh, you know, them having the disease themselves. I feel very fortunate that, and I don't place to, cause people have asked me, you know, how did you, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and, you know, both my brothers are, and my father and my mother, um, the entire family, uh, my grandparents probably were. Um, and they say, well, how did you come out okay? And the others really struggled. And uh, there are two ways to look at that. There's a way to look at it and go, well, I'm just such an amazing human being that I just, you know, I transcend whatever and, you know, yay for me. There's also the real possibility that I just didn't have the gene that they do. And um, I was lucky to be spared it. Um, and, you know, I give myself a lot of credit for working with what I have and to and um, using what I've learned and having the humility and all of those things that I do give myself credit for. But um, the judgment of me as somebody who in some ways is, um, you know, just did something better. I don't know that I can answer that question definitively. It could just be that I got lucky. <clears throat> I absolutely agree with you. The genetics piece and the fortune of not having the gene potentially. But I also would assume you would agree with me. Those on the Al-Anon side of this coin suffer and struggle and are messy 
and are master manipulators, sometimes even better at it than the addict. Mm-hmm. And even though the out of control behavior that one sees in an active addict is so glaring, I think the same happens for many of the family members. It's just the mask wearing of covering it may look a little more intact until it actually falls apart. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a kick in the teeth, right? To um, be married to an alcoholic or have an alcoholic parent and then to eventually accept the fact that you are sick too. And there's no longer this kind of, um, you know, I'm better than you are uh, thing. And uh, I I know you know this doing what you do, but a lot of the times, you know, if there's an alcoholic parent, two, uh, two parents and one of them's an alcoholic, a lot of times the children are hugging the alcoholic and like telling the, the non-alcoholic one to go screw themselves because the non-alcoholic one is acting like a raving lunatic because they are now sick with the disease of alcoholism. Um, and, you know, there's overcompensation, there's controlling, there's all of those things that happen to people who um, are in an alcoholic environment and don't happen to be the addict. Um, so, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's all uh, so in the sense that I recognize that I was sick um, and I got myself help. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I give myself a ton of credit for that. And I'm glad. And I hope that it gives people out there permission to do the same. It's miserable to be in that pain and not allow yourself that help. Well, and, you know, pain like that is deceptive, right? Because you can get so used to it that you don't even know that there's another layer or a level that people are living on. And you have no concept that that that's even a possibility until you start doing the work to get out of the pain that you're in and decide that you're going to live a more meaningful, happy life. Um, People can be very good at coping. And um, I decided that that wasn't good enough. I didn't want to just be a really good coper. I wanted to actually heal a lot of these wounds so that, you know, there's a pathway before me where I could proactively live as full a life as I could Um, And people tell themselves all sorts of stories about, you know, the long suffering person who's, you know, the stiff upper lip and they're, um, they're never going to complain and um, they're going to be a paragon of, um, of patience and virtue and uh, great if that's a story that you want to tell yourself, but um, uh, there's more out there than just surviving something like this. There's actually thriving and making all sorts of other choices outside of um, this environment if you choose to uh, discover what that is. Yes. And that's an example. Thank you for sharing that of the parallel experience, which is the family disease, the justification, the denial, the rationalization, the tolerance that grows within both sides of the coin. The one who's using gains a tolerance until it bottoms out because they're so far gone that they can't achieve the same drunk or high with the amount it's just faster. 
I think the same tolerance happens for family members. It's it's like the frog in the boiling water. You throw them in a boiling pot, they're out. Right. You slowly raise that temperature, they stay and die. Yeah. That, in my humble opinion, is the family experience to a T. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, um, you know, at some point, people... I remember my mother used to say this all the time, you know, she'd say, you know, I'm just so strong. Um, And she was so invested in this idea of being strong. And um, on the cosmetically, she was strong. I mean, you threw a crossword her way and she would come right back at you. And she was, you know, very good at um, protecting herself in all sorts of ways. Um, and especially for a woman, she was at that time, she uh, didn't put up with a lot of, she she wasn't, you know, sitting back and just allowing things. She was, she was reacting and, you know, she, she had all that stuff going on. But um, I think there are a lot of people who uh, are in difficult circumstances who think to themselves, well, I'm strong and I can handle this and I'm going to be okay. And part of developing that narrative about yourself is also limiting yourself. Strength only takes you so far. Um, In my, um, in, in my circumstance, I had that same reaction for a while that, you know, I've got the, you know, I'm so emotionally strong and, and intellectually adept at, at navigating all these things. And eventually I realized that that was one aspect of myself that was sort of dominating the rest of it. And I was missing out on a whole, you know, delightful part of being a human being because I was so invested in that narrative about myself. And I think that happens on both sides of the addiction equation is that, you know, people create these, these narratives about how they're, um, you know, just enduring these things and somehow the sake of enduring it is supposed to be enough and it's not the there's so much more out there yeah and i also you know my heart hurts i never knew your mom a little backstory for kirkland and i we both hailed from the island of bermuda for a period together we were at the same age and you know in circles where i socially knew of you but had no idea of your story and your background so it's been kind of amazing to get to know you now as grown-ups, having been through recovery and and the privilege of hearing your story and reading your story. I I envision your mother and as you've described her, beautiful and articulate and um intelligent and tenacious, you know? You know, some of the stories are are amazing that she didn't give a hoot about someone else. And that her strength was definitely some of her survival. And yet how so heartbreaking is it that that possibly was the reason she could not surrender to get help? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Her stubbornness was the part of her that was ultimately the most destructive. Um, And it's, again, it seems kind of counterintuitive because when we talk about strong people and we talk about that a lot in our societies mm-hmm. um, and it's a very admirable thing to say about somebody. Um, I, again, and this is through Al-Anon. Um, I don't know if it was at a particular meeting, but there was 
a way that somebody phrased the concept of strength through vulnerability that really kind of hit me one day. And I recognized the difference between cosmetic strength and real strength and resilience. Please come back next Sunday when Kirkland will read an excerpt from his book, Filthy Beasts. If you have not read the book, I highly encourage you to do so. Filthy Beasts is available on Amazon and at your local bookstores. In the book, Kirkland offers a perspective as the son of and sibling of people battling the disease of addiction. He uses humor, intelligence, humility, honesty, and great writing. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.